wonderful to be here today going over uh, God's word with you guys. I always count it a privilege and a huge responsibility. And I thank you, Tom, for the invitation and Raul for the approval. Uh, as, so, as Tom mentioned, we'll be going through the uh, theology of Acts. And so my goal tonight, I mean, there's, there's so much in the book of Acts that we can go through and dive into. But my goal is to give you somewhat of an uh, extended introduction to the book. Uh, give you a good outline and maybe use this as a reference in case you go through Acts uh, in your own devotional time or perhaps when uh, Raw comes up and we go through it as a church. But I think we recently recently did so. Uh, so we're going to start off with the uh, authorship of Luke, or excuse me, who the author is, and the author is uh, Luke. Um, Acts is a uh, sequel to Luke, and so you can say that this is a series consisting of two books. Uh, Luke and Acts is just one big story. Uh, both the Gospel of Luke and Acts are addressed to a person by the name of Theophilus. So uh, if you are um, someone that's, or if you know someone that's maybe you know, pregnant, looking for a boy name, and they want to go Greek with it, Theophilus is a pretty good one. Um, I like the uh, translation of the name, which means lover of God or loved by God. And uh, I think it's a, a nice introduction to the book of Luke and Acts when he references that person, because you can kind of think of yourself like, am I a lover of God? And also know that you are loved by God as you go through it. So aside from that, Theophilus, there's no history that we have of him. We don't uh, see any other mention of him. We don't even know who, who he is, uh, whether he was a believer or unbeliever um, that Luke sought to convert. We don't know. Uh, but we do know that uh, in Luke chapter 1, uh, verses one, uh, yeah, 1 through 4, he is addressed as most excellent Theophilus. And so this suggests that uh, he was a Roman official of some importance or perhaps a wealthy, influential Gentile. And uh, we're going to read those uh, verses real quick, uh, starting in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, passed to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So since Luke's first book was addressed to Theophilus, it's logical to conclude that Luke is also the author of Acts. Um, even though Luke isn't mentioned in either one of the books, uh, the writings of the early church fathers, such as Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen, Eusebius, and Jerome, they all affirm Luke's authorship. And so because Luke is a relatively obscure figure, um, it would be highly unlikely that someone trying to plagiarize a letter would use him. Uh, we've seen that happen with the Apostle Paul, though, where someone's trying to plagiarize letters to the church and like, wait, hold up, this isn't from him. Uh, references, though, for Luke, we see him in Colossians 4.14, uh, 2 Timothy 4.11, and Philemon 24. So speaking of Paul, uh, he was, Luke was Paul's close friend. Uh, traveling companion and personal physician. We read that in Colossians 4.14. He was a careful researcher and an accurate historian, uh, displaying an intimate knowledge of Roman laws and customs, as well as the geography of Palestine, Asia Minor, and Italy. In writing Acts, Luke drew on written sources. So if we look on in Acts chapter 15 or 23, we'll see that he wrote those in there. And so there's no doubt that he would interview people such as John and uh, uh, Peter and other apostles. Uh, to get his works together. Uh, same thing like when 
Paul was in prison or on house arrest in Caesarea, uh, maybe Philip and his daughters, Philip the Evangelist, that is, and his four daughters that prophesied, he may have used as a resource as well. And then finally, Luke's frequent use of we and us shows that he, since he's using those pronouns that he had these uh, eyewitness accounts himself that he recorded. In regards to Luke's writings, if someone were to ask you who did the most New Testament writings, it would be Luke. He did 28% of it, which is more than anyone else, and uh, Luke is the longest and Acts is the uh, second longest. Luke and Acts both use 700 words not found anywhere else in the New Testament. So he wrote elegantly. He was uh, writing in a high, sophisticated form of Greek. And Acts completes what we call the uh, Pentateuch of the New Testament. So like the Old Testament Pentateuch would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. New Testament, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. The origin of the book, uh, the, the only resource we have on that is from Irenaeus, and uh, he said that it was written from Rome. Uh, the date of it, there's strong evidence for an A.D. 62 to 63 date. And so the reason why we conclude to that date is if we kind of travel back from A.D. 70, we can arrive at that uh, conclusion because what was the big thing that happened in A.D. 70? We well, had the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, right? So since it's not recorded in the book of Acts, we know that that wasn't the case, that that hadn't happened yet. We go back to A.D. 67, and that's around when Paul was actually uh, executed and Acts doesn't end like that. It ends with his first imprisonment, not the second one. AD 64, that was the burning of Rome, and that's when Nero persecuted the, persecuted the Christians in Rome. None of that was recorded as well. So that, that takes us again to that 63, 62 to 63 date. Uh, there are different titles that people will use to describe Acts. So when we open up our Bibles, like I read mine right now, it says the Acts of the Apostles, right? But it's described in different ways. Uh, w. Graham Scroggie, he describes it as the, the title. His title would be The Acts of the Holy Spirit Through the Apostles and Others During the First Generation of the History of the Church. And that kind of sums up what this book is about. Um, another one would be Acts of the Holy Spirit Through the Apostles, the Gospel of the Holy Spirit, Acts of the Sovereign God Through the Lord Messiah Jesus by His Spirit on behalf of the way. So uh, it's just a lot easier for us just to say Acts, right? But you kind of see what the relationship is uh, among those titles there. Uh, now, the importance of Acts in our canon of Scripture is that it forms a bridge between the four Gospels and then the remainder of the New Testament from Romans to Revelation. So what it shows in, in Acts and tells us is how they carried on Christ's work, and it provides that historical background. Um, because if you can think about it, you know, imagine not having any of Luke's writings. If we didn't have Luke or Acts, and we went going through the Bible, went straight from John to Romans, we'll be thinking, okay, what is this guy? Who's this guy, Paul, who claims to be an apostle? He's not one of the original 12. Uh, we wouldn't even know that the 12th member was actually uh, assigned to Matthias, right, uh, that we read in Acts. And then what, what, what's the church? What's going on there? And why are we in Rome? We were in Jerusalem, right? So Acts answers all those questions for us. The, uh, it, it also answers Paul's apostolic authority and power uh, being equivalent to Peter's. So, for example, healing the lame, uh, shadow that brought healing, an exorcism, confronting a sorcerer, raising the dead. We can read all that in the first half of Acts in regards to Peter, and in the latter half, Paul mimicking those same types of miracles. So if you want to read this based on main characters, uh, Peter would be chapters 1 through 12, and then Paul would be 13 through 28. And you can say 1 through 28 is the Holy Spirit at work. 
Uh, we see how the church started and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So not only does Acts serve as a bridge to the New Testament, but it also helps as a, a ladder in which we can put the epistles on. So as we're reading through Acts, we can see what the order of when these letters were written. Uh, as far as the theological doctrines built from Acts, there's so many. I mean, we go to God, and it talks about his sovereignty. You know, it talks about God's existence and common grace. If we go to Christology, we see that uh, Luke has this, uh, emphasis, this twofold emphasis on and stresses the crucifixion and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We read about that in Acts 2.23, uh, that how the resurrection was witnessed by many in Acts chapter 10, and then the return of Christ in Acts 1.11 and 3.21 is where it's prophesied. Uh, we read about the Holy Spirit. There's a whole lot of pneumatology, study of the Holy Spirit in here. Uh, it talks about his deity in Acts chapter 5, his, his work, how he empowers the believers, the building of the church. Uh, Acts goes through uh, soteriology. We talks talks about salvation, how it's uh, through believing in Christ in Acts 10, 43. Uh, believing involving repentance, salvation being through the grace of God, salvation apart from any works. And then the church, you know, it's the doctrine of the church is what ecclesiology, right? That's exactly what Acts uh, discusses, the, uh, the beginning of it and how it was formed. Um, a lot of the uh, geography, if you, if you want to read it in that way, and understand where these things are taking place. Acts 1 through 7 is Jerusalem, and chapters 8 through 12, it's Judea and Samaria, 13 years there. And Acts uh, 13 through 28, it's 14 years to the, in the uttermost parts of the earth. So again, Acts 1 through 7, you have the it established in Jerusalem for a couple years. 8 through 12, that's when it's, the church is enlarged. And then 13 through 28, we see the church extended. So a combination of all those years is close to, to 30 years. And it's interesting because when we read Luke, most of it is three and a half years, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, right? When we go to Acts and we're recovering a long period of time here, a whole generation worth really, right? And then aside from that, there's the organization of the church, the functions of the church, such as instruction, teaching, fellowship, evangelism, worship, and reverence. All this is, is discussed in Acts. And uh, to try to somewhat simplify it, um, I, I grabbed a bunch of uh, words from a resource uh, of what Acts is, of a, a book of S's. So the first one would be a segue book, uh, a book of transition. If, it, if there's one word I can use to describe this as, as I'm reading it is understanding that there's a transition occurring. And we'll dive more into that. But some examples of that are nationally, it went from Jews to Gentiles. Historically, gospels to epistles. Dispensationally, law to grace. Theologically, Christ to the Holy Spirit. Religiously, Judaism to Christianity. So this is all occurring from AD 33 to AD 77, or AD 70. And uh, because it's a position, positionally a new dispensation that began during Pentecost, but experientially it spread over that entire generation. Um, so if you think about it, you know, the temple's still standing, sacrifices are still being made, Judaism is still being practiced, right? There's this new thing called the church that just begun. And I don't think even the apostles were fully in line until later on. And I think a good example of that is our, our, favorite, <laughs> our favorite one, Peter, right? You know, always tending to make a mistake here and there. But we see that the Lord gave him a vision in Acts 10 prior to going to Cornelius' house. And the Lord saying, hey, don't say what I say is clean is unclean, right? He's going to, going to um, give the gospel to, to the uh, Gentiles. That's what Peter's going to do. He's going to preach to them. And then we see uh, in one of Paul's epistles in Galatians, he's kindly rebuking Peter, right? because Peter's trying to kind of bend toward the older ways of doing things. 
the next S would be spirit. It's a spirit book. So the Holy Spirit's mentioned 56 times. It's a sign book. There's a lot of miracles that are performed. It's a source book. So there's a lot of uh, uh, we sections that uh, Luke will use and got a lot of his info again as firsthand experience. It's a uh, story book. So there's a lot of narratives in it and a sovereignty book. So to touch up on that a little bit, um, in chapter two, starting in verse 23, you know, we have Peter preaching here. And he says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So my question would be, so does, did godless people crucify Christ or was it God? And the way we would answer that would be godless people did it, but it was part of God's plan. Uh, same thing when we read 4.28. It says, uh, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So we see God orchestrated the things that took place. We can say that this is a, a sermon book or a speech book. There are 23 uh, speeches and sermons in here, so uh, that consists of 25% of Acts. Three of them are speeches by unbelievers. Demetrius, the clerk in Ephesus, uh, Gamaliel. The Gamaliel had that one speech when he was telling the uh, Pharisees, like, hey, look, if this isn't of God, it's not going to work out. But if you guys try stopping this, you might actually be working against God. So let's just leave them be and see what happens type of thing. And, Interestingly, we learn that Gamaliel is who Paul learned under. Uh, and the other 20 of the 23 are sermons, 11 by Paul, 7 by Peter, 1 by Stephen, 1 by James. And so this is where the idea of sermons came from. Uh, it is a stimulating book. So we have the spreading flame of the gospel, which provides joy and excitement, right? It's a supplication book. There are 18 prayer meetings in it. Uh, it's about 80 cities mentioned in the book. Uh, so Paul will go to these large urban areas. He'll preach there, teach there, the disciple there. Then the disciples will kind of disperse to the smaller areas around. And we can see that same type of strategy used with some uh, missionary organizations today. Uh, there's 110 people mentioned by name. And uh, so what is, what is the aim and purpose of Acts? Um, there's, a, there's a few good ones, but uh, I'd say this one is a, a good short one. <laughs> it's to provide an account of the origin and development of the church under the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit and to expand the gospel to the world. Um, so, and Luke's account of the movement of Christianity can also be seen as an apologetic. So an apologetic is what? A defense, right? It's a defense of Christianity. And if you read 1 Peter 3.15, that's, that's, it's biblical. You know, we are to uh, defend Christianity. And so the two ways he does that is uh, to meet the charges against the, uh, the Jews and to show Christianity in a favorable light to the Roman world. So both the Jews and Romans were spitefully speaking about Christianity. And so Luke shows that Christianity follows the historic pattern and upon the foundation of Judaism. So in some sense, it's also seen as a polemic. A polemic is um, arguing against the truth claims of another to negate or disaffirm the false teachings of those inside or outside Christianity. So he has this polemic toward the Jews who accuse Christianity of being a subversive and disruptive and corruptive movement. So again, apologetics, defense, polemics, refuting errors. Okay, so that's, that's part of the uh, purpose of the book of Acts there. Then we see and read about the persecution and perseverance of the church. And so if you can... Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read some verses here, okay? There's a, yeah. So, starting in verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, 
He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so uh, what, this is, what this is speaking of is the, the Holy, they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, right? And one of their questions is, though, is, okay, so is this when the kingdom's going to be restored? Now, here at Refuge, we hold to the minority view, okay? So we believe in a literal and physical kingdom of God, that messianic kingdom, that when Jesus comes, it's going to be a literal one. It's going to be a literal kingdom here on earth. Uh, we do believe that God always rules in heaven, right? But as far as the uh, kingdom, we don't believe that there's a present form of that here right now, as, as far as the, uh, uh, the kingdom is concerned when, when the apostles were asking about that. The uh, reason why is you can say right now we're kind of in this interruption phase uh, because what happened? Why was Jesus crucified? Well, he was rejected. He was rejected by the Jews, right, as their Messiah, and so the kingdom wasn't established. So you have this, this pause. And so we're living, though, in the time where God is bringing in Jews and Gentiles into the church. And one of these days, Jesus will return as king, and that's when the kingdom will be established. So we are all citizens of the kingdom, but uh, we're just not in the kingdom yet. Does that make sense? Um, so someday we'll be in it. Again, the kingdom refers to the Old Testament Davidic kingdom promised to David and his greater descendant, the Messiah. But it, again, we believe it to be a literal and physical one. And it's, you can't have a kingdom without a king. And so, yes, Christ dwells in your heart, but he's not physically here. The... Uh, Yes, there we go. So the question that I was trying to get at is when they ask him that, Jesus was with them for 40 days already speaking to them about these things, right? So you kind of think to yourself, okay, are the apostles having another one of those moments again? We're like, dude, you, you know, he already told you, right? But I think it makes sense, and I'm just trying to put you in their mentality right now. So during those 40 days, it's most likely... You know, they would ask, like, hey, where, where's this kingdom at? And so Jesus answering, like, why the kingdom didn't come, affirming that it's going to come, um, that explaining to them that, okay, the Messiah had to suffer. And, and we read about that in the Gospels as well. So it's not something unknown to them. But if you go to Joel chapter 2 or Ezekiel 36, uh, we, we can't get into those scriptures right now, but we would read that there's going to be a pouring out of the Spirit, right? And so... The pouring out of the Spirit is the, the promised gift of God, which we just read in the earlier verses here. So the apostles would associate that with the Messianic kingdom. And so they're kind of, if anything, I think more like kids. You know, they're like, okay, he's saying that the Spirit's going to come upon us. Is this when the kingdom's going to come? You know, is it going to be now, going to be now, going to be now? And he's like, no, it's not for you to know the time. Uh, so the uh, other thing that would lead us to that belief, like a couple couple reasons why I think that's a, um, a sound view to hold is Jesus' response in Acts 1-7 when he tells them that they're not to know the times or seasons. If Jesus was what we would call an amillennialist, which is the belief that the thousand-year reign and kingdom is, is spiritual, it's happening right now on earth, 
Um, so if he didn't believe in a future literal kingdom, this would be the time to correct him, right? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, oh, no, yeah, about that kingdom, it's spiritual. No, he, he doesn't correct them, so that hints that the kingdom will be restored to Israel. Now, later on in Acts chapter 1, when we see that appointing of the 12th apostle, right, I would ask you, well, what's the point of that? Why did, why did Peter say, hey, we got to do this? Why do, we, why do we have to fill this office space? You know, Judas Iscariot's dead now. Uh, Matthias gets it, but uh, we learn that through, through the history. And, and Acts, we see a couple of them get martyred, right? We know that none of them are alive today, so it was the point of filling in that 12th, that 12th seat, right? And I think it refers to uh, Matthew 19, 28, when Jesus says, you will sit on 12 thrones in the regeneration of the kingdom. So again, they have this kingdom mentality that this is going to be a literal kingdom. The uh, other thing is uh, building doctrine. So I mentioned how this goes through so many different doctrines that we can build upon, whether it's pneumatology, Christology, soteriology. Um, we got to be careful to not go to an isolated passage and build a whole doctrine on that. So some things in Acts are not normative for the church throughout the entire age. Again, we're going, they're going through this transition. That's what's going on in Acts. So my question for you is this. Here's a good example. If I were to ask you right now, how do you get the Holy Spirit? I think, I'm hoping we'd all have, we would all have the same answer, right? But if I were to ask you to prove that through reading the book of Acts, you might be lost. You might be lost. And so what I'm going to have you do right now is turn to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 36 through uh, 38. Okay, so it says, starting in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Real quick, context. Peter's preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem, okay? So this is just, you know, days after Christ was crucified, weeks or so. And so Peter's response, he says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So right here, we're reading that the formula is that they repent, they're going to get baptized in the name of Jesus, and then receive the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to have you go to chapter 8, 14. Starting in verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit, now when Simon saw that the, the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. So, reading here, they're in Samaria, right? And... Uh, the formula here is that they would believe, be baptized, have the laying on of hands, and then receive the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what we read here. And then let's go to Acts chapter 10, verse 43. 
and context behind this is this is uh, at Cornelius's. It says, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter preaching again. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So here in this chapter, we're reading that they believe, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then they are baptized. But there's one more, okay, one more. Go to chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 1. And it happened while... And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, Well, what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So here, they heard, they're baptized in Jesus' name, Paul lays hands on them, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. So you have these different groups of people being inaugurated into the body of Christ and the church, and you can't help but wonder after reading those, right, those four passages, like, well, how does it work then, right? Because, I mean, I think you may have heard of maybe other churches doing it a certain way. It's like, oh, no, you got to do it this way, not that way. Now, here we believe that as soon as you believe, you're authentic in your belief that the Holy Spirit will indwell, indwell in you. That's when you receive it. And then to follow Jesus' command, you go get baptized. That's, that's how it works. But So I'm going to explain to you real quickly why it's like this, just in case you ever run into this issue uh, whenever you're perhaps ministering to someone else. So in the first example in chapter 2, again, it's the Jews that Peter is um, preaching to, right? And what I believe is that the church in its infancy like this, God is, is having to do it a certain way. And if we pay attention to the cultural background and uh, the context of what's going on, I, I think it makes the most sense. In this case, the Jews may have been involved in the crucifixion of Jesus, at least the ones being preached to here, right? Because there are, I think, thousands is what this uh, passage says. And if that's the case, what the Lord is having them do is not only just repent, but after they repent, they're going to be baptized and then receive the Holy Spirit. And I think the reason why he, they're going to be baptized is because they're displaying amongst all those others around Jerusalem that Judaism is dead to them. They're now Christ. And as soon as they, they are baptized, that's when they receive the Holy Spirit. And in regards to uh, the Samaritans, well, we know that the Samaritans and Jews, they all got along pretty well, right? When we read about it? No, no, they didn't. They didn't get along. And so they're talking about the Samaritans, like, oh, yeah, we haven't received the Holy Spirit yet, but we believe. But John and Peter, you know, they got to go lay hands on them. So God, I mean, they probably did not want to do that, right? You know, go lay hands, touch Samaritans, ew, gross, right? But uh, again, I think this is the Lord working where 
He's saying, okay, not only are, do they believe and, and they're going to be baptized, but you're going to lay hands on them too. Both of you guys are going to have to work in unity just like the church does. Both sides are going to have to humble themselves because if you think about it, if the Samaritans had the Holy Spirit before the apostles laid their hands on them, well, now you're going to have a split church, right? It's already starting off on the wrong foot. You're going to have two different uh, factions going on, if you would, and, and they're still not going to ever get along. In this case, though, the Lord is doing his work to make sure both sides are Again, humbling themselves and, and working in unity. Uh, Cornelius' example in chapter 10, that's what we're accustomed to as, as Gentiles, right? So there's no explanation needed there. But in uh, chapter 19, we had Paul meeting some of those, uh, what's referred to as Old Testament saints. So these guys were baptized, again, with, the, uh, with, with John the Baptist, the Baptist um, baptism of repentance. And so in this case, that's why they were heard baptized in Jesus's name and then Paul lays hands and they received the Holy Spirit. So you're not going to have an example of that anymore. Okay. We're not going to have Peter and, you know, Peter and John aren't running around now having to lay hands on Samaritans. You know, there's no more Old Testament saints running around, right? Those who believed in God before Christ. Okay. Um, so I, I wanted to point that out because we're no longer in that transition period. And about 150 times in the New Testament, it's written that salvation is by faith alone and about five for being baptized to obtain the Holy Spirit. So we always have to interpret the difficult passages in light of the clear ones, not the other way around. So lastly, we'll go through some uh, application here. Uh, Acts tells us what the New Testament church should be like and what we should be doing in Acts 2, verses uh, 42 through 48. But there's also a lot of things Acts doesn't tell us, right? It doesn't tell us how long a sermon's supposed to be, how many elders we're supposed to have, what song to sing, how many songs, what time we meet, how long service in totality should be, you know, should the kids be in their own class, should it be amongst the congregation here? It doesn't talk about any of that. And God gives us a lot of freedom in that regards. You know, we, if you go to a different culture, right, somewhere else in the world, you're gonna see that they run their fellowship a little differently. Uh, the important thing is devoting ourselves to doctrine and the teaching of the church prayer, fellowship, etc. Um, not to get married to the form of it, but to the function of what God wants us to be doing. And that should be our template, uh, submitting to the word of God, right? And humbling ourselves, uh, utilizing the power of prayer. You know, that's our, really our greatest offensive weapon, letting the Holy Spirit control our lives and yield our hearts and lives to him. Now, if you can, please go to uh, the final chapter of this book. It's uh, Acts 28. We're going to go to verse 30. All right. Verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So we're reading here that uh, Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God, right? So it's interesting that the beginning of the book of Acts and the end of the book of Acts is doing just that, it's proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now, What, what is that proclamation? Well, that proclamation would be that uh, 
Jesus Christ came into the world and, and died, and it's, it's, it's the gospel message, right? Died for our sins, and now he is the uh, risen savior uh, of the world. Um, I think that uh, it's interesting how, how it does that, how it goes, how it kind of starts with that kingdom and ends with the kingdom, because in order to be a part of that, you have to be right with God, right? You have to be right with the king. The uh, most important reason why this book was written is that it just not serves, that it doesn't just serve as the immediate time in which it was written, but rather serves an eternal and timeless purpose, purpose to communicate the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the establishment and building of the church. We see today God's work and acts of grace toward mankind and the introduction of a salvation that's not won by works, but rather by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, one quick thing I do want to point out, too, is that um, in Acts 15, 39, we can see that even committed Christians can disagree sharply. So in this case, you had Paul and Barnabas. They're about to go on a missionary trip together. And Barnabas is like, cool, we're going to go bring John Mark with us. And Paul's like, no, we're not. I'm not going to bring that chicken with me. He abandoned me last time. And Barnabas is like, well, he's coming. And Paul's like, well, I'll see you later. I'm taking Silas. And they part and they go their separate ways, right? They go their separate ways, but what they didn't do is they didn't split the church. They didn't divide it. They didn't go, you know, calling each other, you know, names and stuff or getting into fights. They went their separate ways. And then eventually what happened in time is John Mark and Paul were on good terms again. You know, Paul ended up regarding him as a, a good servant, uh, someone useful. So it's just something I wanted to point out because I know sometimes within any church, really, there can be some pretty sharp disagreements, but it's important that we stay unified and work together uh, and continue serving the ministry and not let the enemy uh, get us in that regard. Uh, the last thing is uh, Acts, again, in summary, uh, shows the gospel going from Jerusalem to Rome. You know, the generation is in transition there, right? where we are in the continuing story of the spreading of the word. So we at Refuge need to take our part in that um, because we could be the last part of it before the rapture occurs. Um, so in that case, we need to remain faithful. You know, we can clearly see the, the darkness and the secularism and the persecution seeming to grow. So it's important for us to let our, our, let our lights shine brightly for Christ until he comes. And uh, the theme verse, I thought I'd end with that, you know, so it's chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the, uh, the lesson in that verse is that God wants his message of hope and salvation to extend to all people. You know, in Acts 16, 31, it says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Uh, Charles Sindwell, Swindoll, I'm sure you've heard of him, he called the book of Acts the, uh, the spreading flame. And I like that because we see kind of this flame starting with, with Jesus Christ even before that, right? But Jesus Christ, you know, he dies on the cross and he gives that flame to the apostles and they, they're spreading it and the church is growing. And even though Rome tried to bury it, even though Rome tried, you know, made it, the church go underground for a while thinking that, hey, if we just take the oxygen away, that flame's going to go out. And, and did that happen? No. No, it didn't happen. You know, centuries went by, and guess what? The flame's still alive, right? So Acts ending on this note in 31 about the teaching, you know, with, with all boldness and without hindrance, um, despite all the attempts to stop it, the message still goes forth. And uh, that's it. So I guess we'll... Uh, our heads, all right, pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, thank you for uh, this, this book of Acts. 
that you had given us, Lord. We, th- we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the uh, history the behind the, uh, the church and how it was built. Uh, may we, Lord, be encouraged by the persecution of our brothers and uh, continue to carry that torch, continue to carry that flame, Lord. Um, I believe it's in uh, Timothy where it says to, to fan the flame, Lord, of our gifts. And uh, may we here at Refuge, Lord, whatever our gifts are, uh, do that in uh, service of you and, and uh, not um, ever go a day without uh, having that fuel and fire within us to uh, honor your name and uh, praise you and uh, do our part in ministry and uh, providing uh, that type of service to those who may be future citizens of your kingdom, Lord. And uh, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.